Welcome to the Vori's IP, the IP podcast. My name is Jeremy Harrison, and I will be your host for this episode. In this episode, I invited Mike Messenger, an attorney with Vori's, to discuss patent assertion entities, commonly referred to as patent trolls. Mike provides background on patent assertion entities and also gives great insights and advice on how to successfully manage patent assertion entities. And now here's my conversation with Mike. Today, we're speaking with Mike Messenger. He's a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Vori's Sater, Seymour, and Pease, and also a member of the Technology and Intellectual Property Group. Mike served as a patent examiner for six years in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and currently advises clients on a variety of intellectual property issues. Throughout his career, Mike has helped clients of all sizes create IP strategies for protection and to enhance their freedom to operate in the computer and electronics fields. Mike serves as an adjunct professor at the Georgetown University Law Center, where he teaches patent licensing. Mike received his JD from the Georgetown University Law Center and his Bachelor's of Science, Magna Cum Laude, and Physics from Duke University. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to today, be here. Well, good. I'm glad we have you on today. We're going to talk about managing patent assertion entities, and uh, this will be the first, hopefully, of a series of podcasts uh, discussing various aspects of this subject with you. And um, with that, let's get into it. Let's start off with, I think, a burning question I had as a patent assertion entity is, is a term that I wasn't specifically familiar with, but uh, what exactly is a patent assertion entity? Yeah, that's a great place to start. And, and you're right, there's actually a fair amount of terms in this industry and people use different terms. Patent assertion entity refers to business entity that's set up to license and assert patents. So it doesn't produce products. Another term you'll often encounter is a non-practicing entities. And I think in general, patent assertion entities and non-practice entities are used interchangeably in that regard. Yeah, but I obviously know that some people call them patent trolls. Is that considered more of a derogatory term? Yes, exactly. I, patent troll is a term, it's pejorative, it's derogatory, and in many U.S. district courts, you're not allowed to use the term because it's so prejudicial. I, you know, it's, it's helpful, I think, and it helps us understand the issues we'll talk about today. If you step back about 20 years ago, when the patent troll term first sort of came out and was used more widely, it arose in a context where there was a number of letters being sent out to different businesses Often these letters were very high level using mail merge programs that were new at the time. And they were very perfunctory kind of letters, uh, bare bones that would say, hey, I think you would benefit from a license. And often they wouldn't even mention a patent number or an accused product. And people receiving these letters felt sort of like they were getting shaken down for money. Because Mm -hmm. if you took such a vague letter to a lawyer and said, how can I handle this? It would be an expensive proposition. So it was almost easier to just sort of pay a nominal fee. Uh, A lot of that abusive behavior has been reined in, curtailed by a number of reforms in state law and federal law. And we're not seeing that activity anymore. What we're seeing now is much more sophisticated entities, patent assertion entities that are sending far more sophisticated letters. Yeah, so I, I think the being shaken down comment is correct, you know, and I think, I think that's probably where the patent troll moniker stems from primarily, but the, I mean, when it comes down to it, these people or these entities own intellectual property rights, and they just are simply enforcing them, which, which would actually leads me into my next question. What about their business model? What, what can you tell us about a patent assertion entity's business model that you're seeing today? Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, what we're talking about is perfect, perfectly legal behavior. Um, and so, you know, some people think of a troll is, you know, maybe an ogre under a bridge. <laughs> and I advise clients that that is not helpful in this context, because often 
the entity you're dealing with is a sophisticated group of professionals, lawyers, engineers, and investors that are operating a business to monetize patents and to appropriately get a return on their investment for their patent assets. And there's a range of business models in which that plays out. I, I think of it as kind of a spectrum. On, on one hand, you have privately held companies, and some of these can be quite small, and they're basically asserting the patents and trying to monetize them and get licensing revenue uh, on behalf of inventors, on behalf of universities, on behalf of other companies that may have donated their patents to the patent assertion entity for this monetization effort. And then you also have larger patent aggregators that have a business model of tens of thousands of patents that are asserting their patents in different ways and different packages to different industries even. And then you actually have publicly traded companies that are also asserting patents and monetizing them, um, as you said, perfectly legal ways, but on a, you know, using the, the public business model. Yeah. So I think patent trolls or patent assertion entities sometimes get a bad rap, but I mean, personally, if I was to, uh, I don't know, purchase a patent for a new computer mouse, for example, I'd want to assert my, my rights to that patent. If I purchase the patent and, and if somebody's infringing it, I'd want to go ahead and, and stop other people from doing it unless I get paid for it. Yeah, exactly. One way I think about it is um, it's often re referred to as the secondary IP market. And that's yeah. kind of the entire market where patents are bought and sold. And, you know, for your average individual inventor to actually go enforce their patent rights, it's a very difficult proposition. It requires a lot of resources and assets. Many inventors will offer their patents to the secondary IP market, to a patent assertion entity, and let the patent assertion entity monetize their property rights on their behalf, and they get a return for that transaction. And, and it's, a, it's a more efficient way of actually sort of securing the property rights. Yeah. So you mentioned sales. You know, wh where else do, uh, do these patent assertion entities get their patents? Oh, a number of ways. It, it's a broad, active secondary marketplace in sales. And they, those can come from operating companies. Many operating companies sell legacy patent portfolios to the secondary IP market, especially for product lines they're no longer pursuing. There's also a number of online marketplaces where different groups of patent owners will post their patents for sale. And um, auctions, although we're not quite seeing as many of that as there used to be, but they're still available. Bankruptcy is another option where a bankruptcy court will be selling the patents to get return on to the debt holders and patent assertion entities can acquire assets there. And what we're talking about is a very large segment of the market. Recent statistics I've seen that patent assertion entities were 75% of patent buyers in the secondary IP market. So they're big players in this space. Yeah. So it's a business model. It's really, really interesting how people have converted that into a way to make money. Yep. So uh, let, let's talk about some of the players in the patent assertion industry. Who, who are these players? Can you delve into some of those that you know of? Yeah, it's a mature industry. So, I mean, you know, there's hundreds <laughs> and, and they change over time as, as different, you know, um, entities are formed, realize their monetization and then close. But, you know, just look at some of the, maybe like the three top large ones that are backed by a fair amount of funding. There's Acacia, which has about 6,000 patents, I think 100 plus lawsuits going on that, that's well-funded by, by different litigation finance like Starboard Value. There's Wisu Holdings is really active right now. 
you know, somewhat of a name, Wisu, and then Brasso's licensing. Um, they have about 4,000 plus patents, another 100 plus lawsuits going on from time to time, funded, get funded by litigation finance. Uh, right now, the industry is kind of watching about 10,000 patents that were transferred from larger patent assertion entities that operated over a number of years and that are now closing down, like Intellectual Ventures and FinGen. And those assets are being sold off to smaller new patent assertion entities that will be taking those assets and monetizing them in new campaigns. Well, Mike, you have uh, you, you have your finger on the pulse of, of what's going on with these with these entities right now. What what are the current trends you're seeing in patent assertion entity activity? Um, well, that that's why we're talking about this. <laughs> you know, the trends are up and the trends are robust. And I think even when I talk to experienced patent attorneys, I think they find the level of patent assertion entity activity to be surprisingly high. Uh, for example, like right now, sixty percent of Patent litigation in the United States involves patent assertion entities. And if you look at it, even in this year, patent assertion entity litigation as of the third quarter of 2021, where we have the most recent data available, it was up 18% over 2020. And that's not just due to maybe a slowdown in COVID from 2020. If you look at the last three-year running average between 2018 to 2020, Patent assertion entity litigation in the United States is up 24%. And so those are remarkable numbers um, in the current climate. So how do you account for that higher statistic over the past, I guess, three, four years? Yeah, I I think it is just the maturation of the industry. The the litigation and percentage of patent litigation by patent assertion entities has been going up for over a decade. Um, It's been steady and robust. There were some sharp reforms to curtail it in 2012, and then there's some Supreme Court decisions that impacted patent assertions, especially in the software space. However, the markets now sort of accounted for that, factored that in, and now we're seeing sort of the results of that. Now that those reforms have been sort of factored in, the markets responded by even being more mature and aggressive. So... Patent assertion entities, is that primarily an issue for the high-tech industry? I mean, typically they're focused on people that have, like you mentioned, the software. Should only the high-tech industry worry about these? Yes, that's the dominant area where we see it play out in the high-tech industry. However, what we're seeing on the ground is that this industry is well-established and it's moving into other, other sectors. And so, like, I think, you know, even the current stats are about 95% patent assertion entity litigation does involve high-tech aspects, softwares, computers, electronics, but a lot of it's moving into the automotive sector, a lot of it's moving into the financial services, a lot of letters and campaigns are being launched in retail, and the way I think about it is most industries are now involved to some degree in software, computing, and processors. You can almost think almost every industry is now to some level a software yeah. uh, industry. And we're seeing a lot of the patent assertion entity campaigns track that. So to be more concrete, like last year, patent assertion entity litigation was up 182% in the automotive sector. It was up 48% in the financial services sector. And, and like I said, retail, medical devices, other industries were impacted as well. Right. So do you think if you are a company or an entity with deep pockets, you're going to be more susceptible to these types of actions? Uh, yes, <laughs> but we're seeing it, and this is somewhat surprising perhaps, 
we're seeing the patent assertion activity broadly across small and medium-sized entities as well. In fact, many of the campaigns are launched against small, medium-sized, and large companies. It's not just you know, a Fortune 100 issue. And as a practical matter, that kind of makes sense because the patents and the potential infringing products are used by many different types of companies, you know, small, medium, large. So it's not surprising that the monetization tracks the small, medium entities who are using products as well. Right. So would you see, I mean, I'm just thinking uh, if I were a smaller entity, not deep pockets, why would an assertion entity go after me? Well, your exposure is lower. So that's the good news. (laughs) I mean, you do have a smaller amount of products, smaller amount of revenue. So whatever royalty rates or or damages are involved are a lower number. However, yeah, there is a feeling like, hey, I'm a small guy. Why are you picking on me? (laughs) Go pick on the big fish in the pond. And, And this is where, you know, you really can talk to some patent litigation experts, but it's very important if you're a pat from the patent assertion entity perspective, when you're carrying out a campaign, you need to establish a royalty rate as high as possible. And if you can establish a higher royalty rate, as you encounter new targets, additional companies, it's easier to get a higher return for your overall monetization effort. And sometimes the smaller entities, medium-sized entities will agree to a higher royalty rate to make the problem go away because their overall dollar amount that's impacted can be low. And so maybe they'll agree to a 15% royalty rate or a 20% royalty rate because they have a smaller amount of goods, but it lets the patent assertion entity for campaign purposes say, you know what, in this industry, 15% royalty rate is reasonable. And they can take that royalty rate as an example when they go after the deeper pockets. Right. So it doesn't matter. Large, small, you could all be susceptible. It just depends on what the, uh, I guess, the entity is looking for. Yeah, yeah. And, and we're actually seeing, there, you know, there's a number of private sector third-party efforts that are sort of helping companies respond to patent assertion entities so they don't have to go it alone. Yeah. And um, almost all of those efforts actually take into account whether or not you're a small company, a medium-sized company, a large company, and, and they actually have sort of scaled levels for participation so that when you're trying to sort of handle a defensive measure, you can join these defensive groups and they take into account your size. And so it's almost like the, the, the industry itself is recognizing that the different size of entity comes into play in how they defend themselves. Right. So let, let's switch gears then. So how, how exactly would a company come into contact with a, a patent assertion entity? Yeah, often they basically receive a letter. And from their perspective, it can be out of the blue. They're they're operating their company, they're using their products, they're using software. And then all of a sudden they get a letter from a patent owner, one of these patent assertion entities uh, that basically says, hey, we identified through public information, usually some web links or about their product information uh, that you might benefit from taking a license. Um, Often that is the first contact. There are some cases where their first contact may be it's an actual lawsuit um, yeah. where they're named as a defendant. That's a little more dramatic, a little more scary, um, but that can happen as well. Right. See uh, multiple venues. So um, the title of our podcast, Managing Patent Assertion Entities, it's fairly provocative title when you think about it. So how can a CEO or a general counsel actually manage responses to a, a patent assertion entity? 
Yeah, thank you. And I, I, I agree because from a CEO GC perspective, you're like, what? I can't deal with these. They just sort of happen. And But, you know, like many issues that get managed and many, many risks that get managed, there's sort of proactive responses and reactive responses and patent assertion entities and how companies respond to that also offer those kinds of options. For example, we, we mentioned one where you sort of get a letter and you just sort of keep your head in the sand. And, you know, often in today's climate with more sophisticated patent assertion entities, that's not an option. And, and there are some sort of proactive ways that companies can do to sort of build out their responses and, and set themselves up for more control of the process. Um, but I guess an overall an overall strategy is not to just put your head in the sand. You, I mean, you, you, you've got to respond to these, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I, one, one way we often advise clients is, well, you know, it's like a two-pronged strategy. The first prong is Carrie Jordan, our practice group leader at Voris, likes to call it, is push it off your plate. You know, is, are there some options available where I can push this off the plate and make it go away? And, and one way that often occurs is through indemnification. If it turns out that the patent assertion entity, which remember, they're only looking at sort of public facing information. If you're using software or something, they may not know exactly what you're using or how you got that. One way is you might actually be indemnified by the software vendor or, or an entity that's maintaining your software may have an indemnification obligation. That's, a, that's one possible way you can move it off to the plate and move it off to your software provider. <laughs> yeah, be grateful for um, good, good attorneys that draft good contracts with, with your software Yes, provider. exactly. And so many of our clients are looking at their indemnification clauses when they're, when they're buying products and services more just for this issue. And, yeah. and then there's a second option, as you suggested, that well, you can actually immediately begin to build your defenses and even launch attacks where appropriate that might help you gain more leverage to get a lower number uh, for settlement or other with the patent assertion entity. And there's a number of defenses. They, they tend to fall along two lines in the patent world. One is non-infringement, the other is invalidity. And there have been some patent reforms in the last nine years that have actually increased your options for defense. However, in the last couple of years, there have been some counter reforms that sort of remove some of these options, but there's still ways in which you might be able to start assembling your defenses. The way I think of it is you may as well start grabbing ammunition and start collecting your ammo because you may need it later. <laughs> yeah, so I think the uh, uh, lesson learned here is that when you receive one of these, you have some defenses, but you also have, you can go on the offensive, but the, the wrong choice is to not act. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, in many situations sure yeah, yeah exactly you know and especially if it's the sophisticated letters with detailed charts that we've been talking about where you've been targeted and it's pretty clear you're part of a very sophisticated cam campaign that's you know touching your company yeah all right mike well it seems like we're coming up about the end of our podcast here just um you've given us some good advice uh, some uh, some strategies to move forward are, are there any Nuggets of wisdom you want to give out in uh, dealing with patent assertion entities before we close? Well, if you are a company that receives a, a letter from a patent assertion entity, I would encourage you to use your whole team. Often a response is interdisciplinary. It's going to involve business. It's going to involve technical. It's going to involve legal. And engage your whole team early so that you can get out in front and determine the appropriate value and steps to create yourself more options to control the response. 
Okay, yeah, well, thanks uh, for this helpful introduction to the uh, patent assertion entities landscape. Let's end there for our first part and we'll uh, pick up on these strategies for responses in, in uh, more detail in our next podcast of this series. Thanks for your time, Mike. Thank you. This has been an episode of the Vorey's IP VIP podcast. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to speak to either myself or any of the guests, please feel free to reach out to us. You can contact us through Vorey's website or via the Vorey's Intellectual Property Updates webpage on LinkedIn. If you have a suggestion for a podcast topic or would like to recommend a particular guest, we'd love to hear from you. My name is Jeremy Harrison, and I hope you can join us next time. Thank you.